Bibles, I would love for you to turn to 1 Corinthians 5. It'll be on the screen in a minute. I'm going to read it from my Bible in front of me, 1 Corinthians 5. And I alluded to this. Uh, let me just say this. We're getting into a stretch of 1 Corinthians where we've got some, uh, some PG-13 components to it. But today, I don't think it'll be that day. I think this will be a safe place for any age. If you don't trust me and you got a little one, you may want to get up now. That's if you don't trust me. And just go out into the commons. We'll have someone out there. They'll see it by the look on your face. And they'll walk you down to our excellent children's ministry uh, down the hallway. I think this is good. The guy, a guy did something really bad, and it's juicy and gross and wrong, but it's kind of in the background. We're not really talking about what the guy did as much as how the church responded. And so that's 1 Corinthians 5 today. So when we read this, it's just um, a couple things. Number one, it it's, um, seems harsh, seems strange, and seems uh, hard to stomach when you first read this. But I think it'll be something really beautiful, I hope. And my task is a tall one. 1 Corinthians 5, 1. 13 verses in the chapter, we'll read them each of them. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and removed from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit. Some of y'all thought that verse was like, a real sweet one, you know, in the Bible, but it's in, the, it's in this context. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new leavened unleavened batch, I'm sorry, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with the old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother and sister and is sexually immoral or greedy or adulterer or verbally abusive, drunkard, on and on. Do not, eat with, uh, do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside. God judges outsiders. Remove the evil, evil person from among you. Welcome to Fondren Church today. Anybody want to switch roles? I'll be very happy. Uh, to come out there. No, really, honestly, uh, I say this. I, I was dreading this at the beginning of the week and I got deeper into it and I just started getting more, uh, more levity and more lightness and more appreciation for this. And I hope that will be uh, you, all of you, or most of you by the end of this. It really is a good thing. It's hard, it's hard to swallow, hard to stomach, but it's such a, such a beautiful thing. I hope you'll see that. Uh, hey, so you read this. I mean, what could there be? Can you imagine a more harsh verse than 1 Corinthians 5? Like, just give them over to Satan. And then have nothing to do with them. Does that not beg the question? I mean, does anybody want to get up and walk out right now? Because on the surface, that's not the kind of church I want to be a part of. Anybody with me? Like, I don't want to be a part of that type of church. What about unconditional love and acceptance? What about being an open and welcoming and tolerant community? What, what about that? So in this passage, what I want to do is I want to put a couple of, I want to write a couple of phrases up. One from the Bible over here and then one from uh, advertising agency that developed something that you've all heard uh, in America. So in 1 Corinthians, this is just to set the, uh, the backdrop for us. The first phrase from the Bible is a word that we talked about a bit in week one of 1 Corinthians. And if you're here watching from home, 
I said this in the first service. We didn't like just, I just didn't like pick this verse today. We're walking through this letter. And so here we are. But the phrase set apart, the, uh, God is a set apart God. Now remember, I'm, I'm backing up, follow me, stay with me. I'm, I'm setting this up to, to, I hope, bring more meaning to 1 Corinthians 5. But to set apart, God is a set apart God. And you see this uh, throughout his word. You see it in the beginning of his word. In Genesis 2, 3, God says, set apart a day. You know what I'm saying? Set apart a day called Sabbath. And this day is not like the other day. There's seven days, but one day. God says, give me one day where you rest, where you cease striving, where the Chick-fil-A drive-through lane of your life is closed, where you're not telling anybody, it's my pleasure, where you feast and you rejoice and you play and you recreate and you worship and you say, God has got this. No matter my worries, no matter what I need to produce, I'm going to take a day of rest because we are not like the Energizer buddy. We can't just keep going and going and going. Uh, we're more like the Greek's archer bow. If you always keep it bent, you, you will be broken. It will break you down if you don't rest. So God says, set apart a day. It's really important. Just sketching this out in a few places of scripture, showing you how early God said it. But in place in uh, Exodus 13, 12, uh, we're told to set, a, set aside, God says, now this is obviously time bound, it's cultural specific, but God says, set apart, set apart your firstborn son. This was involved, this was the time when God was rescuing the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. So set apart a day. That day does not need to look like other days. I hope you do that. Set, this is, again, specific, but set apart your firstborn sons. These should stand out because I want to do a work. God's doing a bigger work, and so you need to set apart. You stay in that book of the Old Testament, and you see in Exodus, it's the 28th chapter, the 38th verse and I'm going to do a, a dash because it's following. You'll need to read the verses after that. But in Exodus 28, 38, he says, set apart the tabernacle and the temple. Set it apart because it's a place unlike other places. It ain't the Waffle House. It ain't your house. It ain't even the White House. It's a special place. Set it apart. And then he says, set apart uh, the priest for serving other people. Uh, set apart clothing and objects. There's much that is set apart. Now, let's fast forward a whole bunch. We could keep going, but let's fast forward a whole bunch. And I want to ask you, what else do you think God wants to set apart? He wants to set apart you. He wants you, this is one place of many, 1 Thessalonians, if you can't read my chicken scratch, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. I want you to live differently. Now, set apart means not like the other. I've raised three kids. I put it in the past tense because I think they're pretty much, you know, it's, it's almost done. And I'm like trying to become friends with all of them. But they're, 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 they're young adults. And they can tell you uh, that we haven't like overparented, I don't think, at any stretch of the way. But I know that a lot of times they'll go out the door. They'll go somewhere and I'll say, hey, you know, be different. I'll, I'll throw you, hey, you're going to so-and-so. You know, be don't follow along because here's what I want to tell you not in a prohibitive way, not in a mean, overbearing parental way. But if you live set apart, there's so many blessings there. If you just follow the crowd into drunkenness and revelry and, you know, cheating and evading and, you know, being self-centered, whatever it may be, if you live set apart, here's a promise I want to give you, especially if you're a young person. If you live set apart and don't follow the crowd, can I tell you a blessing you're going to find? People are going to respect you and they're going to want to know what's different. 
and they're going to call on you and they're going to know they can count on you and they're going to respect you and they're going to ask you why you're different and they might even hire you. I talked to a guy the other day. He just, he just lived set apart. His Christian testimony has been known by other people and doors have opened to him. He lived, he lived set apart. Can I just say, 1 Corinthians 5 is going to make a lot more sense to us if we realize that Jesus desires you and me, his church, to be set apart. It does not mean, this set apartness does not mean that we're superior, that we're self-righteous, that we're sanctimonious, or that we dwell in some sort of shelter from the world, which is easy to do. So Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. I think you already know which tendency they tended to go to. But, you know, some people just, um, we, we, we shelter ourselves. Well, I'm a Christian, so I'm going I'm to be away from the world. And I'm going to be different than the world. And so I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to touch this or do this. Or, and it, it, we kind of go to an extreme. And it becomes sanctimonious. And it becomes really a life in a bubble, an insular life that's joyless and not compelling by any stretch. But then there's another um, way, and this is what was happening at Corinth, and Maybe some of you might be there today. It's like you just jump headlong into the world. It's too hard to be set apart. You don't want to live different. You don't want to balance yourself like a gymnast on the beam. You, you, you just want to jump all in. And so you choose the world. You jump into the world because that's what people are doing. And the church in Corinth, listen, the church in Corinth needed to be set apart. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lift a quote. I have lifted a quote. I'm about to put it on the screen. This is from a prominent Greek writer in the Greco-Roman world who writes these words and this is why Paul wants the church to be different than the world. Look at the, look at the vileness of this. Uh, we keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day -day bodily needs, but we have wives to produce legitimate children and serve as trustworthy guardians of our homes. I'm glad no men said amen on that one. Somebody did at the 930 and we excommunicated them from our church. We actually demonstrated 1 Corinthians 5, had them ushered out. I just snapped my fingers. But I, listen, this is patriarchal. I would say it's archaic, but this type of lifestyle is glorified in music and movie and media in our day. But um, this was the culture. This was what was glorified. This was what was happening. And women and children were the ones being hurt. And Paul is writing and said, no, not, not the culture. Don't follow the culture. If you follow the culture, it could be this. So I want, husbands, I want you to love, if you get married, I want you to, and we're going to talk about singleness and marriage in a couple of weeks. But if you get married, I want you to, I want you to be the husband of one wife. And I want you to live with her in an understanding manner. That's 1 Peter 3. That's Peter. I want you to live, I want, I want you to live different. And this is not what I want. This could be glorified, but don't, but, but be different. Now, the second phrase, I want to lift it not from the Bible, but from our culture. And I bet you can finish this for me. You got it? If you see something, say something. If you see something say something. Now this was an ad agency, an ad agency right after 9-11 in Manhattan developed this. Right after the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001, the New York City Transportation Authority adopted this as um, a value in public settings. So for local residents, for tourists, for everybody, if you see something, say something. And then all around the country, including Jackson, Mississippi, later that year or the next year adopted this as well. So you could have been at the Jackson airport going back to 2002 
early part of 2002, and you may have heard this come over the intercom. If you see something, say something, which is kind of weird in public, right? Because you don't want to profile. You don't want to be like, oh, there's a Muslim or there's an Arab or there's someone of di different skin or darker skin or someone that didn't look like me or what's in that backpack or whatever, whatever. But it's a different world, we would say, that we're living in. So if you see something, say something. And the subline to that is report any suspicious behavior. That's where it got weird. If you look around, like, is that? Report suspicious paper. But beyond that, what undergirded it at all is this. The stakes are too high to not say something. And what I'm saying to you today is you'll appreciate 1 Corinthians 5 more if you realize that you're called to be set apart. That God desires his church to stand out from culture and be different. And that we need to be part of a community so knit together, so close together in community, in Christian community, following Jesus, that we are a people that if you see something, you say something. Diedrich Bonhoeffer would say it like this in the book, Life Together. He would say, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. I want us to keep our fingers in 1 Corinthians 5, but to look at Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17, I bet some of you are familiar with this. Jesus said this in Matthew 18, 15 to 17. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and tax collector to you. In other words, banished out. It's the same language of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's how we could summarize what Jesus teaches us. Look at the screen. Jesus is saying this. If there is conflict, you go to the person in private, discuss the problem for the purpose of reconciliation. I told the earlier crowd this, but now you're in trouble, right? You're in trouble because Jesus gave some sound advice, practiced anywhere, would lift, uh, would lift every boat in the harbor. Every life would be positively touched. Uh, help and healing could be brought to your family, to your small group, to your workplace if you live this. But listen, you won't beat, you won't beat a better leadership strategy for interpersonal conflict right, than this right here. No one could beat what Jesus taught right here. Nobody can, but man, we bypass it. We break it all the time. So real quickly, let me, this will give contours and meaning to 1 Corinthians 5. Jesus is saying, if there's a conflict, and by the way, it should say when there's a conflict. Because can I say this? I, I want to tell you, don't glamorize the church. It's easy for us to go, people in my tribe, in my industry go, yeah, I'm going to plant a church and wherever, and we're going to be a New Testament church. And I appreciate their enthusiasm. I don't, I don't want to be the wet blanket. I don't want to be the one that rains on their parade. But I'm like, okay, yeah, you're going to be, which one are you going to be? Which New Testament church are you going to be? Because you know what? Once people started getting together, they had problems. Once you put people anywhere, you're going to have problems. Don't glamorize the church. Now, love the church. Look at me. Love the church. Christ died for his bride. Love the church. Join the church. Be involved in the church. But don't glamorize the church. 
And Jesus is saying, when you have conflict, you will. Listen, sometimes our fighting, sometimes we fight constructively. Often we fight destructively. Sometimes we fight fair. Sometimes we fight unfair. Sometimes our fighting ends up in hugs and kisses and greater depths of intimacy. Sometimes our fighting leads us to anger and shouting or coldness and withdrawal. And can I just say many times coldness and withdrawal is more painful than the anger and the shouting. And we fight and we we fight conflict is going to happen. It's just going to happen. So don't glamorize the church. Don't glamorize any group of people. When conflict happens, and it will, Jesus says, you, you. But preacher, I didn't, I, it wasn't my wrongdoing. Preacher, I'm waiting on them to come to me. Anybody, don't raise your hand, but anybody waiting on them to come to you? I know you are. Some of you are waiting on them to come to you. I told you you're in trouble today. Jesus says, you. You. Now, here's what's interesting, all right? I know you're, some of you challenged. I know you already put a roadblock up. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, if they do you wrong, you go to them. In Matthew 18, if you do them wrong, you go to them. You. This is not avoidance. It's approaching. It's taking the initiative. Put that book up if you would. It says, you go. I, the older I get, the more I appreciate the word go because it connotes action. It, 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 it's, it's our young, some of our young people who went to the Dominican Republic, go to the world, go to the nations. A friend of mine texted me this week, a really good friend, and he said, hey, uh, what's the number, the name and number of that counselor? I've, been, I've had a lot building up in me. I want to go see them. Uh, I want to go to them. I've had some family stuff happening, and I'm just, I'm not dealing with it in a healthy way. I want to go to them. I admire him for going to counseling. I admire people for going on mission. I admire people when we, when we take Jesus' green light and we step into action. Can I just say to whoever needs to hear it, stop avoiding. When there's conflict, you go to the person not to a third party. And this may be the great Christian violation in Christian community today. Well, I need to vent. I need to go talk, you know, because I may not be seeing this right. So if I talk to so-and-so and then I talk to so-and-so and then we pray about it and talk to a couple more people, then I might go to them. Jesus says differently. And you want to bring health to the body. When there's conflict, you go to the person privately. When the scripture talks about restoration, and that is what 1 Corinthians 5 is about. It's about living set apart, and it's about if you see something, say something, have the courage to do, do so. But the Bible talks about conflict being um, restorative. Proverbs 27, 6, any note takers write that down. Um, the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. Yeah, it hurts. When you have conflict and you solve it, it hurts. But it's, it's, there's healing there. So you do it restoratively. You do it quickly. Ephesians 4, 27. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Go quick. And, and go gently. Galatians 6. Go with fear and reverence because you yourself are a sinner. You yourself have stuff in your life. So go, go gently. Go quickly. Go restoratively. And by the way, this is a principle. I hope you, some of you see this, especially if you... Uh, 
become a Christian minister one day or lead a small group or teach the Bible in any, any way, when you come to a hard passage like 1 Corinthians, like nobody wants to preach this. Nobody. Took me to Thursday to go, yeah, I'm going to preach this. But nobody wants to preach this. But when you come to a hard place of scripture, don't panic, don't be embarrassed, don't freak out, but go to the places that are clear. And what's beautiful and clear uh, shines and it's, it's such an invitation to us. Here's how you have conflict. And I'll say it one more time. You won't beat this. You won't beat this. Post it in your workplace. Practice it with your family. You won't beat this way to handle the conflict. You go and you, you do this privately. So there is what we need to acknowledge. There is in Jesus in Matthew 18. There is in Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. There's the private conversation. And if that doesn't work, you take a few. And if that doesn't work, you take the church. And this was where it gets real tricky. If the, and if the church, so here's what I want to say to you, and this will really, really, really help. This may be the best thing to say, but in this chapter that seems problematic, this is not, this is not like you, you know, us walking around and becoming a bunch of people that microanalyze each other's faults. Because who wants to be a part of that? So 1 Corinthians 5 is not a, let's walk around and find fault with everybody at all. And especially not the small things. It's not us going, hey, you know, you watch too much TV you can't come to Fondren Church anymore. Or, you know, you're a little cranky in the morning time. We're not going to let you come to the potluck, church potluck or the crawfish bowl. Some of y'all are too cranky, by the way. But we, like, it's not, here's what this is. Let me be clear. This is um, a public, a, it's, a, it's a public spectacle by a prominent figure who is defiantly, openly, persistently doing wrong. And the wrong is so bad in verse 2. Did you see this? He, he's saying the Gentiles, it means the pagans or the heathens. It's so bad. It's like if we did something so bad uh, that the church, uh, the world would look at us going, man, y'all are nasty. Y'all are just wrong. I mean, you know, we can be that wrong and we can do something that. So that's what this is talking about. This is a public spectacle with a very prominent figure who is persistently, defiantly committing wrongdoing. This is an ongoing thing. And so this is why uh, we see a seriousness about this. I want to give you four reasons why this, this is a, <laughs> don't post this on social media. Um, four reasons the church must remove sinning members. Does that make you uncomfortable? It's kind of in line with 1 Corinthians 5, but stay with me for a second. Um, I'll, I'll clarify the headline. The first one is uh, all these from the fifth chapter. If the first reason is for the good of the brother or sister, the church should be a shelter. It should be an umbrella from the ravages of life that is hard. It should be a family of people who love, with each, love each other and stand with each other, no matter what. And when it's so bad, so public, so such a, a big deal, the wrongdoing is so blatant and it's hurting people, um, that person is called out, that the fellowship is broken for the good of the person. Never punitive, never in spite, never with a, a sense of, oh, they're lost forever now what paul says is always he talks about giving them over to satan but he's also talking about how god has saved their souls how there is salvation in the end but the hope is galatians 6 1 they would be restored back into the fellowship the hope james 5 19 is they would be won and wooed back to the family of god but sometimes it takes for us the ravages of a hard life of sin and on the street the harsh reality of that to waken us and come from our senses and I don't find this offensive at all if you look at Jesus' story in Luke 15 about the prodigal son. Man, he insulted his father, essentially spitting in his face saying, give, him, give me the inheritance and I'm going to go 
squander it on wild living with prostitutes and drugs and such. But scripture tells us in Luke 15 that he came to his senses. And this type of church discipline uh, can be good for people. Preacher, have you seen it? Let me say this. Church discipline makes most of us recoil, especially if you're on Twitter. It's just, you know, so this is my analogy. It's a simple one, probably fifth grade level, but stay with me. If a man wakes up this morning and walks out to a four-way stop and stabs somebody, that's going to make the news. Local man wakes up, stabs somebody at a four-way stop. And we're, we pass that on like, who was it? What was he thinking? What happened? And was someone hurt? And on it, that's news. But if a man wakes up this morning, man or woman, and gives their spouse breakfast in bed and drops the kids off at school and goes to work and does a good, honest day, like that doesn't make the news, does it? No one says, man got up and worked hard. Man loved his family. That's, that's not news. Who's going to report that? And I feel like if you'll, if you can appreciate the illustration, church discipline, we only hear about the bad ones. We only hear about the hill songs and the Mars Hills and those, and those happen and those are bad and those are sad. And man, I apologize to people that have experienced anything like that. So there's a discipline in the church that's really bad, especially if we ever think this is me above you. That's why, listen to me, even though he doesn't say it in 1 Corinthians 5, appreciate it in Galatians 6. When you go to someone and you see that they've been in sin, you go to them gently and with reverence, with the hopes. But why? Because you yourself are a sinner. So, but church discipline, yes, and I've seen it, and yes, it can be a beautiful thing. Listen to me. A small thing can hurt the whole body. One little hole in your tire can keep your whole car from moving. One F, a strategic F on a midterm or in the year final can affect your GPA. One um, one strip of bugs, as we have found at Fondren Church. Y'all stay with us. We're laying sod this week. But one strip of bugs, microscopic bugs, can kill your lawn. A whole section of it. Small thing can ruin a bigger thing. I've got friends that are Georgia football fans. They've been kind of hard to live with the last couple of years, just winning those natties. But right after that second national championship, there was a race where some players were at, and there was a woman who was killed in cars that were riding too fast, and one of them was a first-round draft pick, is a first-round draft pick. If you're a Georgia football fan, as is my friend, I was talking about him this week, he wants his coach called Kirby Smart to be smart and to address that with the team and to say, here's how we treat women. Here's where, where we are certain times of day or night. Here's where we're not at 2 a.m. Here's how fast the car goes. Here's what's involved. If you're an Alabama basketball fan, here's what we do with guns. Here's our relationship with guns and ammunition because a single mom is dead somewhere. Let's talk about it. So if you're an Alabama basketball fan, I think you're about to win the national championship. Or if you're a Georgia football fan, you want a coach that will deal with that problem because it could be a grave thing. I'm not implicating anybody in any wrongdoing. I'm just talking about this idea that small things can lead to bigger things. And one person, one hole in the tire, one bad test, one group of swarming microscopic bugs can hurt something big around you. And this is the spirit of it. And so when we see that, we need to say something about it. And it's for the good of that brother. That brother, that sister could come back home. But the fellowship must be only when it's that bad. 
the fellowship can be broken. Number two, it's for the good of the brotherhood or the sisterhood. In verse six, he talks about leaven, which is another word for yeast. And this is reference to Old Testament. If you like bread, you may want to plug your ears real quick. But in bread, there's dough and there's yeast. And it's like, it's basically, it's, it's fungus and it grows really quick. Think about that when you're at Broad Street later today. But, you know, it's, it's, it, you, you put a little bit in there and it, it, it messes with a whole batch of dough. And that's what he's saying, that one person, one sin, one public spectacle by a prominent figure blatantly doing wrong could affect the whole thing. And I've seen it in reverse. God help the church that covers it up, that looks the other way. You know what Paul said? Paul said, you ought to be grieving but you're proud. It took me a long time to figure out what he's saying there. Here's what I think he's saying. This is a church. You ever seen a group of people like that? We're open and we're tolerant. Everybody's welcome. And by the way, I'm not trying to be mean, but the, some of the groups that claim to be the most open and the most tolerant aren't. Like I could walk up in that group that's really open and tolerant. I bet you they could kick me out in just a few minutes if I start saying something they don't like. Are you with me? And so I'm, here's what I'm saying. I'm not picking on one side, although I guess I am. Stanford Law School, free speech or not, anybody see that? But like, we brag on being open and tolerant. And that's what the church was doing. Hey, and so listen, anybody's welcome. You're welcome. Your sin, my sin. We're all welcome to come to Jesus, but we need to go where he takes us. Paul, by the way, any irony here, Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians 5 was a murderer. Mary Magdalene was a prostitute with seven demons. You are welcome at Fondren Church. We are not moving toward a, a group of people micro-analyzing faults and failures. We are a loving, radically inclusive, open community. But when there is sin and serious sin among its leaders or members and it's defiant and it's persistent because the sin was three things. The sin was public, the sin was repugnant, and the sin was persistent. It just kept going. And you can agree, whether it's on a, a team or certainly in a church, it's damaging. And so we have to deal with it. So it's the good of the brotherhood. If I haven't convinced you that this is a loving passage, let me try this. This is my last stab before the other two points real quick. Picture a family, mom, dad, four or five kids. The oldest son is, you know, 29 years old and has moved back home. And this old son has a drug problem. He's got a friend problem. He's got a morality problem. He's got a rebellion problem. Um, he comes back to home with the family and he uh, brings friends over. They're doing drugs. They begin to steal things. They, be, they suspect that they're being involved in criminal activity. This mom and this dad loves this 29-year-old son. They welcomed him home for a safe place, for shelter, but they have other young children as well. And they're worried about this older brother and his friends harming and hurting the, the family. You with me? And so what do they do? They lovingly confront him. They go to him in love and they say, hey, we need to turn this thing around. We're here for you. We love you. We want to help you, but here's what we need. If you're going to live here, if you're going to be a part of this fellowship, this family, here's what we need of you. Here's what we expect. Here's what you must do. They do that over and over again, but he refuses. It only gets worse. There will come a time for that parent, and no one questions this, no reasonable person would. There will come a time for that mom and dad to go to that son, that 29-year-old, and say, you must leave this house. And so that's not ideal, but there is, in the life of a family, there is a time when you unhouse someone for them to experience what they need to experience, but it's for the greater good. That parent doesn't want to hurt 
their son. They want to help those other kids as well. And so this could be good for the brotherhood and the sisterhood. Thirdly, it's for the good of the gospel. I've kind of hit on this, but the gospel message is anyone can come but follow Jesus where he takes you. No matter your sin, we're not going to stop being that kind of church. Uh, We want to be that kind of church for anybody here. Anybody is welcome. Isn't that good? I mean, isn't that a good feeling? Do you ever look around and go, I can't believe so-and-so is at church today? Do you ever do that? Hypocrite. Number Number four and final is it's for the good of the watching world. In verse 9 and 10, Paul writes and he talks about, this is where it gets kind of tricky, but he says that the world is watching us. And here's what we do, wrong. And I want to say this clearly and I want to lean heavy on us. But Paul is writing, and this is what I love, very, very inspiring. He says that we ought not to judge the outside world. And here's what we do in the church. We spend a lot of time judging the outside world and tolerating our own sin. And Paul says, flip it. We know, and some of you are going to, you know, I don't want to get any emails about, ah, you know, they're coming for our kids. And you, are you saying, I'm not saying we shouldn't take a stand on things. I'm, I, it looks like they are coming for our kids. But we don't need to judge the outside world and be afraid. Can I just say, Christian, if you're in Christ, don't be afraid. The, the world can't get you. Cancer, the cancer can't get you. If there's cancer right there and I'm here, it can't get me. But if cancer gets in here, it could get me. And the same thing is true. And this is why this is serious. And look, we show the watching world. All right, A and B, you'll go, amen, preacher. But we show the watching world the glory of God by the way we passionately worship. Amen? We show the watching world God's love by the way we radically and lovingly stick with each other. Amen? But listen, we also show the world the seriousness of sin as they watch us take sin seriously. And I don't want to be like that person when I say this. But I want to say it. If you don't take sin seriously, follow me for one week. Sign up for my job and see what I see. The ravages of sin and its effect on families. Sin is a serious thing and the world needs to see us with love and joy and peace and brotherhood and sisterhood, but it needs to see us taking sin seriously. So as Lauren and the team come up, I want to pray over us. And one final little thing, this again could be the sermon. With a, it needs 100 clarifications, but we don't have time. But you say, preacher, what about judging? You know, if you look at Matthew 7, it's one of the most famous Bible verses. It is the most Googled right now. It says, Jesus said, don't judge. If you judge, you'll be judged. And, you know, you're judging and you're, you're uh, noticing the speck in a neighbor's eye and you're disregarding the plank in your own. Isn't that great? Like, so stop judging. James 5, 11 and 12, do not judge other people. There's only one lawgiver and one judge. That is not you. That is God. Don't judge. Romans 14, 4. Don't judge other, you're judging other people and who works for them. Don't judge them. But yet, you read 1 Corinthians 15, 13, and it says, bad company corrupts good morals. You read Psalm 1 and it says, don't, uh, don't walk in the way of the wicked. Don't stand in the path of sinners. Don't sit in the seat of scoffers. How do you know who's immoral? How do you know who's wicked? How do you know who's a sinner? How do you know who's a scoffer if you don't make judgment? So listen to me, church. Do not judge. 
the church gets this often do not judge but do not use do not judge as a means to not discern error or speak the truth because we are wise and healthy and whole when we do that all right y'all send me a thank you note for preaching first corinthians 5 would you buy me lunch somebody would you stand let me pray over us Father, thank you for this morning. And I pray that you minister to us, that we would be a community where when people come in our doors, when they circle up in our groups, they don't see a bunch of people who are microanalyzing faults and failures, but they'll see a family of God that stands with each other, that stays with each other, that notices and cares, where we see people growing in our set-apartness. And we have the courage restoratively, gently, quickly go to the person in love when we see something and say it in a way that can bring life. God, I pray you protect us as a church from scandal, that leaders would be godly, that relationships and conflict would be handled in honorable ways, that there would be a watching world that would give you glory. Jesus, we pray. Come today, if we can pray over you or with you, come to the altar today. This time is open, these few minutes.